Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is probably the first episode I'm actually nervous about. I'm not nervous in a shaky sense. I'm nervous about like striking the right balance and how, you know, we talk about Obama in this book. And uh, so I'm here for you. I'm going to I'm going to be a gentle, <laughs> a gentle leader. I'm going to I'm going to protect you. We're going to get through this together. OK, <laughs> I won't let you get hurt. All right. Yeah, well. <laughs> that remains to be seen. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. And today's show, we're going to talk about two really incredible people that we have already been talking about for a long time. That's right. Barack and Michelle Obama. You know, they were actually here in Chicago just the other day, down the block from where I'm sitting right now, breaking ground on the Obama Presidential Library. And we have been eager to dig into their biographies. Memoirs, their autobiographies. Yeah, we're going to talk about Michelle and Barack Obama's books. Yeah, I mean, like, and the titles, like, Becoming, Becoming what? That's fascinating. And then A Promised Land. A Promised Land. Yes, yes. So we're going to look at these books to look at how they talk about race. And racism, because we've been trying to figure them out uh, for quite a while. Let's do this. Book Club, Chapter One. <laughs> chapter One, yeah. All right, so look, before we really get into this episode, I have to make it crystal clear. Look, Barack Obama is adored and loved by many. Uh, I love him in so many ways, but he's a complicated figure. And so I just, you know, needed to be clear that people like my wife, Stephanie, are like, look, this is my first black president, period. End of story. These are Obama's fireworks. Whether they are or not, that's what they are for us. That was actually from when we were on Martha's Vineyard this summer. And we got out of our car because there were fireworks over the water. And I had to press record on my phone. <laughs> That's right. People thought that the fireworks might be for... Barack Obama's birthday. 
This is a whole, this is way too many fireworks for it to be random. I'm just saying, this is Obama fireworks. And I don't care if he's too conservative or not. This is a black president. <laughs> you just celebrate yourself some Obama. That's right, baby. I love my wife. She doesn't mince her words. But anyways, during all the, uh, the release and news coverage about A Promised Land coming out, Obama's uh, new memoir, I was so excited to hear Obama talk about um, the book uh, yeah. in general, right? Um, he, he was giving interviews and I happened to be in the shower and it was, in the, <laughs> it was late afternoon, I'm, you know, after a workout or something. And it's all things considered... I'm super excited and I'm like, oh my God, I got to call Ben because I got, I got to let him know that Obama's on talking about his book. And for yep. me in, in particular, what I was fascinated, or at least anticipating, was he hadn't talked almost at all in the wake of the four years of Trump. Very little he had to say. I mean, he, he was writing a 700 page book. Well, that's true. But I'm not the only one who felt like, that, you know, that we could have used more from him to, Definitely. to talk about what the hell well. was going on in the country. Yeah. Okay, so, so that was one reason that I was fascinated to hear this interview. And then the second reason is because it, it was, although it was November, he hadn't said very much about the madness of the George Floyd summer and the protests and all of that. Yeah, we are, I mean, just thinking about that crazy moment, it's after the election, Biden has won, Trump hasn't conceded, we're in the middle of the pandemic, we're coming after the summer of George Floyd. Yeah, it's fucking madness. Yeah, it's crazy. And and, and then we get smooth, <laughs> smooth jazz, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he's giving an interview to Michelle Martin, and they immediately get to the race issue. Well, as I write, um, particularly when you start looking at police issues, and that's why I think what happened this summer with George Floyd was so important where you saw at least some shift in the general population in recognizing that there's real racial bias in how our criminal laws are applied and how policing operates in this country. What I realized was that nothing touches a nerve more in terms of the relationship between the races in this country than uh, issue of policing. We all know that Obama's brilliant, and very thoughtful in his speech, and with thinking a lot of complicated ideas, and that he's not the fastest talker, right? <laughs> but oh my God, man. I mean, do you remember how frustrated I was? I was like, yeah, yeah. Every, every word that came out of his mouth about how he was understanding what was happening around racism in the country was like dripping one syllable at a time. Well, the dripping metaphor is good because you're in the shower. But <laughs> you you had developed a theory after this that he speaks more slowly when he's talking about race yeah. than about other issues. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it probably could be empirically proven. Uh, I haven't done it yet, <laughs> even though I'm the one who's the so-called But why, why do you think that is? So you, you came up with this theory at that moment. We call it the shower theory. Yeah, I'm just listening to an interview. But now that I've read the book, I mean, it, the theory is now for real. Like, he doesn't want to own, notice I'm modeling Obama thoughtfulness. No, you are speaking slow <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to own 
the burden mm. of making white people feel like they're all racists. He actually has a thing about black people who think white people are in general racist. And he, and so, he, sit, he rejects this view over and mm. over again in the book. I resisted the notion held by some of the black folks I knew that white people were irredeemably racist. The conviction that racism wasn't inevitable may also explain my willingness to defend the American idea, what the country was and what it could become. He calls it out. But do you think so that means he's, he's weighing his words even more carefully? Yeah, yes, yeah. I think okay. he is weighing his words because he doesn't want to give the impression that he's one of those kind of black people. Maybe he's speaking really slowly, just hoping that people won't, won't listen. <laughs> well, I think what he's doing, like, here's my takeaway on this point. I think he's just trying not to give that impression to white people. He wants white yeah. people to like him or at least to listen to him in such a way that they won't confuse him with those crazy, radical, racist black people. Yeah, so, so we didn't do an empirical study of how he speaks and his pace, but we did go back and read these two books, and we read them really carefully, sure and we're going to talk about them in depth. Yep, let's do it. I mean, listen, um, there is so much in this book to talk about, um, and one of the things that I think is really important to start with is his conception of the American story, the, the okay. nation itself, like how he understands the promise of the nation, hence the title of the book. Uh, and yeah. he gets at it right away. I mean, the preface in many ways may be the most revealing of how Obama talks about race and democracy. I mean, it, it, uh oh, this it, is this is like one of those book reports where it sounds like you only read the preface. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's <laughs> You're true. like, like, like the true. most important part yeah. is in the but first I, four pages. <laughs> but I can assure you, Barack, if you're listening, I read the entire book. Okay. Now that being said, you know this notion we talk a lot, you and me, about. American exceptionalism. Yeah. And usually for me, it's like the myth of American exceptionalism. Yeah. Right? So American exceptionalism, the idea that this country is is really the greatest country in the world, that we are the most perfect nation and we're, we're striving towards a perfect nation, but we're already like leaps and bounds ahead of others from our founding and a, a sense of equality and democracy to now that we are the, the leading democracy in the world. Right. That there's that there's something about this notion of the American dream, about everyone can have their cake and eat it, too, if they just work hard enough. For sure. Um, usually for us falls short of reality. And we spend a lot of time trying to square that myth with reality. Yep. So Obama gets right at it. I mean, in, in the preface, he he basically says, you know, I recognize that there are those who believe that it's time to discard the myth. And then he even says that the critiques of him as someone who is committed to American exceptionalism means that he has been, quote unquote, understood to be too tempered in speaking the truth, too cautious in either word or deed. I mean, this guy understands himself, right. where he fits in the world, and the ideas that are at stake with the choices that he has made and the choices he's likely to make in his post-presidency. And so at the end of the day, he says, like, for him, he's not ready to give up. He cites Lincoln. He says, like, Lincoln called out the better angels of our nation. He says, I think we stand a better chance believing in the promise of America. And he says, 
Of course, the jury is still out, but I think this book is for young people. This is an invitation for them to remake the world, to work hard, to be determined, and to make America finally achieve what it's always believed is possible. So I'm really interested in in that idea that you take from the premise that we have this the myth and reality, but he's still incredibly hopeful and is going to strive towards good. Yeah. And then how he applies that to some of these specific moments the, and, and talks about them, some of these kind of racial trigger moments in his presidency. So he basically talks about two Americas. There is essentially the America of the Confederacy, hmm. the America of slave owners, of people committed to segregation and Jim Crow, uh, in America where there are real racist bigots and people who don't believe in democracy. And then there's this other America, the America that he believes in, the America that elected him twice, the America that is the one that made promises that will, will be the beacon of light to guide us to the future. Because one of the things that becomes clear very quickly is that what Obama calls race or what he describes as our racial past and what we might call as racism is for him a thing of the past. He has a clear-eyed understanding of the realness of racism that is situated in our past, but he does not call it the same thing in our present. Here's one thing I never believed, right? was the fever of racism being broken by my election. But I, I never subscribed to the, uh, we live in a post-racial era. Um, but I think that what did happen during my presidency was, yes, a backlash among some people who felt that somehow I symbolized the possibility that they or their group were losing status just by virtue of the fact that I didn't look like all the other presidents previously. It is almost as if in the present, what we might recognize as racism are grievances, resentments, slights, um, and things that are in people's head. So Khalil, I spoke to one of the smartest people I know about books, Jennifer Salai. She's brilliant. She has mm -hmm. reviewed pretty much every single uh, political memoir over the last four years. I think public figures in general, when they write a memoir, it is often about, you know, either trying to explain themselves, trying to excuse themselves, uh, and trying to shape the contours of how they're remembered. She actually reviewed both of these books Becoming and a Promised Land for, in the Times. So I asked her, basically, like, how do these books function? Meaning, if we're going to look into these books, you know, how are we supposed to ju judge them? And this is one of the things that Jen told me. I do think that his way of thinking, even if it turns out sometimes to be politically frustrating and is not necessarily what you want from a politician, especially when the stakes are really high, but I think, as a reader, I do appreciate reading along in someone's consciousness who is, you know, very self-aware and also aware of the situation at hand. I think that that can actually have, 
you know, maybe real world hindrances when it comes to dealing with some of these things. Oh man, I, that 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 line uh, when she says that he's, you know, thoughtful, very self aware, and yeah. informed. That's it. Like she's got it exactly right, just in terms of my, you know, what one of my major impressions, aside from watching him very thoughtfully and deliberatively talk about complicated things over the course of his presidency, reading his memoir, I was struck by the fact that all the times that I would have pulled him by his lapel and said, Barack, (laughs) this is what you need to do. And then given him a history lesson or some kind of policy context or something like, the New Deal didn't work for Black people. The universal programs won't get us there to racial justice. Like any of those moments I felt over the course of his administration, I learned by reading this book that he'd taken all that into account. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I came away from the book thinking to myself, I could not have passed on any nugget of information or historical context or wisdom that he didn't already know. And in that, I, she's right. He's, he's yeah. brilliant. He's incredibly well-informed. Let's turn to Michelle Obama's Becoming. Let's do it. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. 
because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Becoming came out at the same time as my book, High Risers. <laughs> and I would go to the bookstore, you know, fucking excited, like there's my book on the stand. And I would see people come in and buy Becoming. This is on the south side of Chicago. Like, like they were like they were shopping for toilet paper during the pandemic. <laughs> they would like grab six or seven and, you know, and just like walk, walk to the, the register. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. That's how you sell a lot of books. They were making an investment, <laughs> man. Those books, they, they like, were thinking those books are going to be worth a lot of money on eBay one day. It was, it was before Christmas of uh, 2018 and, and people were just giving them away. Yeah. You know, that was in everyone's stocking yep. or under their menorah. Or <laughs> on the Kwanzaa table. On the Kwanzaa. So you had, in many ways, the the better of the two tasks, because I mm. read a whole bunch of foreign policy. I mean, I know more about what right. was going on in the world during Obama years and, than, than most people in the world who were living in those places. But I digress. So the, the first time Michelle Obama is really thrust into the national stage is this moment in 2008 when she's on the campaign trail for her husband. Let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. And not just because Barack has done well, but because I think people are hungry for change. And what she means is that there's even a a black candidate for president. But it becomes this sort of highly politicized moment. And to think of her... It becomes her angry black woman moment, Yeah, right? yeah. She, she suddenly gets stamped as an angry black woman. You know, there, there's, you know, this idea that she is a radical who, like, the most radical thing she's ever done is decide not to be a lawyer. But it's, a, it's also a radicalism that is interpreted through the right-wing media as someone who hates America. Yes. Because if this is the first time and she's a grown-up adult, then, what, then she must have been hating on the country all this time. So for us to talk about how she talks about race, this is a good starting point because it is this sort of like, you know, touchstone moment for her. Yeah. And I can't wait. I know what Obama says about it. Uh, He was like, yeah, we shouldn't have even put her up there without practice, (laughs) which is interesting. But I can't wait to hear what she says about it. I'm going to actually tell you about how the book is written to Mm -hmm. sort of explain. Becoming is written in three parts. Okay. And the first part is called Becoming Me. The second part is called Becoming Us. And the third part is called Becoming More. The, the book is kind of self-empowerment, sort of mm-hmm. has this kind of self-help, self-actualization. She keeps on talking about finding her voice. Mm-hmm. And she talks a lot about how women support women. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the part that you just mentioned where she says this in Madison, Wisconsin, occurs mm. late in the second part of Becoming Us, which is about her and Barack becoming mm. a couple and then him running for president. The third part is when they're in the White House. But to, to really answer that question, I have to go back to the first part, which is about her becoming me. Oh, so you're, you're, you're teasing us. You're setting this up, right? I just got to explain the context. You okay. can't understand right. it. I'm giving, right. I'm giving the book its due. Okay. Because I got to say, like that first part, I love that first part. Mm. The first part of the book is, which is about her and her upbringing, is beautiful. It's beautifully written. It's powerfully written. It's so specific and rich in detail. Wow. And, I uh, hope you read the, something from it. And, and Michelle's book is so specifically about being Black working class on the south side of Chicago and of a certain moment in time, which mm -hmm. we know, which is after civil rights. It's so grounded in that moment. And in so such in such detail. Now, I don't live that experience, but for me, part of the pleasure of the book is that it's so familiar in locale. Uh, you know, she is growing up a couple blocks from me. She gets on the six Jeffrey bus, which is my bus. Yep, I know that bus. That's my bus too. She goes to Whitney Young, where my niece goes. You know, her and her friends go to Water Tower to ride up and down the escalator, which is what we did. That's right. Marshall Fields was was where I got all my back to school clothes because <laughs> yes, nice. I was I was black and bougie in a way, black and bougie, black and bougie. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, she talks about racial turnover in the neighborhood, which is you know, it's my experience of suddenly you see all these churches that uh, 10, 15, 20 years before were synagogues. It's just incredibly familiar. But I think the book, it would be almost, it would even, even other people reading would feel this sense of familiarity because that's just good writing. You see mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also about striving. It's also about being, uh, the, you know, the very first line of the book is, I spent much of my childhood listening to the sounds of striving. And mm -hmm. she's talking specifically about her aunt. They live in a split level home and her aunt is teaching piano below her. But um you know, it's it's as a metaphor, she extends it of being somebody who wants to achieve, who thinks about this and is is kind of on a path almost thoughtlessly. She talks about herself being a box checker. She's such okay. a rule follower. You know, yeah. Michelle gives Obama this grounded experience, you know, a sense of place. So back to the idea of when she says, you know, I'm not this is the first time I've been proud of my country because it's really in the details and in mm -hmm. the details of her experience. She doesn't she doesn't have to say it exactly. It's actually been shown. Um she has this sketch of her grandfather, and I'm going to read you a little bit of it. Okay. Uh, I, I'm really glad you're going to read a little bit yeah. of it. If this were an American dream story, Dandy, which is what she calls her grandfather, who arrived in Chicago in the early 1930s, would have found a good job and a pathway to college. But the reality was far different. Jobs were hard to come by, limited at least somewhat by the fact that managers at some of the big factories in Chicago regularly hired Europeans over African-American workers. Dandy took what work he could find setting pins in the bowling alley and freelancing as a handyman. Mm. Gradually, he downgraded his hopes, letting go of the idea of college, thinking he'd trained to become an electrician instead. But this too was quickly thwarted. And so then uh, she talks about not experiencing the, the American dream. Yeah. She has this really amazing depiction of her father. Mm -hmm. And you ask, what, what are her parents do? Her father works in the water department uh, for mm -hmm. the city of Chicago. And mm -hmm. he also has stunted dreams. He wanted to be an artist. Uh, he was an athlete, uh, but then he gets MS. He gets multiple sclerosis. Um, mm -hmm. 
And he is just somebody who works so hard and works kind of like silently and tirelessly. And she tells this amazing story of his car and how much he loves his car. And his car is sort of like a symbol of success and, and, and you know, rising up, but also giving him mobility because of his, his disease. And he has this car. It's a bronze-colored two-door Buick Electra 225. Oh, yeah. Which he calls a deuce and a quarter. I was going to say it, man. Yeah. I wanted to call it out just before you did. Of course it's a deuce and a quarter. A deuce and a quarter. So then she tells this story of... You know, someone in the neighborhood, a black family, one of their neighbors, moves to the suburbs. And it's like, what? They moved to the suburbs. And so they live in the, in the city on the south side of Chicago. And they get, all get in the, in the car one day, Michelle, her brother Craig, her parents, and they drive out there in the deuce and a quarter to, <laughs> to see this family. And they're like, you know, it's, suburbs are kind of weird. There's all these white people looking at them. Um, they have a house. Like, you know, she doesn't think it's that appealing. At the end of the day, they, they leave to go home. And they get to their car and there's a giant scratch in it. Wow. Someone has run a rock or something across, across the, the, the driver's side. Wow. And her and, dad and, for, looked, and like literally like for a black man, his castle is his car. Like in a, in, in a way that like having, you know, the American dream embodied in a mortgage in a great home. If you couldn't have that, the next thing you could have is, a, is an amazing ride like a deuce and a quarter. Now some asshole has scratched it up. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it's a it's about race. I mean, they're in a white. It's about racism. Let's be clear. That's it's about, about racism. racism. Yeah, and and what her father says is, "Well, I'll be damned," mm. and then they don't talk about it again. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's how she talks about that moment. That's how she explains it. Yeah. So the so when you say the devil's in the details, like the narrative arc of that kind of origin story for Michelle when she sees a racist act that Obama might call a racial slight because he doesn't really <laughs> talk about such things in, in, in the kind of forceful way. Um, so she bears direct witness like to the vulnerability and innocence of her own family, and yet they could be subject to this degrading assault on just their basic dignity, then helps to explain why she is now on this national stage, potentially be about to become the first lady, and is like, holy smokes, like, I'm seeing a part of America that I'd never really known personally before until now. Yeah, this ties to something that Jen Salai said to me when I interviewed her. I did get a sense of political pes pessimism in her book. Um, you know, not quite in his book, but in her book, where, you know, the implication is that there's only so much that politics can do to change something as deeply entrenched in American institutions as racism. You know, people love Michelle Obama for her realness. Mm -hmm. She's relatable in this way that, that her husband isn't, who is, you know, is professorial and cerebral and like sometimes, you know, aloof, cool. Um, she's so grounded in place. And, and I, I have to say that reading this book, I loved her even more. Like I felt that. And, and even in the ways that she, she talked about race and racism, you know, especially in those early parts, you know, 
her her own history. It's so detailed. Her own striving, uh, her feeling of being underestimated, her feeling of being the only black person in her world as she's sort of moving through corporate worlds in Princeton and other mm-hmm, places. Mm-hmm. And then she enters the maelstrom of national politics and she she talks about being bewildered by it all. Yeah. Suddenly for her to be cast as this, this black radical, like, that's just not who she is. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first-ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards that's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards i'll save you a seat i want to tell you a quick story Hmm. the last week of the obama administration i think it was like the last week before the election i actually went to the white house 
with my hmm. wife. You went to the White House? What? To this? You didn't take me to this B. There was a, a BET event. Black Entertainment Television has a sort of like you know celebration of the Obamas. This must be a BET event. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the White House. I love you back. That's why we're having this concert. And I'm there because my, oh, yeah. my wife has the hookup. you told me about yeah. this. Yeah, you yeah. saw everybody. Yeah, right? so, so Tanahasi was there. Yeah, Tanahasi Coates writes about this and he is there. Yeah, yeah, o- yeah. O- o- Barack Obama gets on the stage with Belle Biv DeVoe and dances. Cisco was there. Wasn't Cisco yeah. there too? The, this woman, oh, Yolanda oh, Adams, oh. this gospel singer, sings uh, the John Legend part of Glory with Common. And it is just like her sound, her voice is just ricocheting off the room. It's like the the greatest musical experience I've ever had in my life. You know, it's like a religious experience. Dave Chappelle actually makes a joke there. He says that all the famous black people and one white person, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> but not the only think, one. <laughs> not the only one. Not the only one. Because this right. motherfucker but, was but, there too. But, <laughs> but I, think, I think it's important to note that you weren't there as journalists Ben Austin, you were there as as arm candy to your beautiful black wife. So the the it was amazing, it was extraordinary. But yeah. the, the vibe of the night was just this, you know, celebration of the last eight years, almost like pinching yourself and saying there really was like a black first family in the White House. Mm-hmm. Like the whole evening is just this wild celebration. The election is in days. There wasn't one mention the entire night of the election. Get out the vote. Mm. Um, Hillary Clinton is the best way to continue this legacy. We need to support her. Support your local elections. Not a word. Nothing. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah. you know, most people didn't expect that Trump was going to win. But it did happen. And you can't go back and talk about that night and talk about what a great celebration of looking backwards at these last eight years without thinking about what was to come. And so there was that night, just this great omission. And, you know, that is a way also I think about Michelle's book, because you can't reckon with the past without thinking about what's going to come next. And I guess I would say, like, that's like, for her to do that, it would be a different book. It would be less uplifting and maybe she would also be like a different person. But that's the difficult storytelling you also have to do. And I, and I, I just, I guess to kind of bring it full circle, um, I think the frustration overall is understanding for, for the first time that uh, Obama's going to stick to his guns, right? <laughs> and I mean that like in every way. He, he truly believes in American exceptionalism. His commitment to this notion of a promised land, I don't believe it in the way that he does, and that's okay. He just, he wrote a book that basically said, no matter what's happened in our past, and no matter what happened during my presidency, and no matter what's happened since, uh, including with the election of Donald Trump, that he's going to double down on it. And, and I, think, I think actually both books, and when you talked about this belief in the country, both books sort of reference that that king quote that that Obama would often cite, the, you know, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Justice, yeah. That it is, it has this very optimistic view 
of of the country and the sense that the the work it actually takes to to move it towards justice it's not that it bends on its own that's that exactly it's, it's such- that is so well said because that's my other point like i wanted to say cuz i don't want to just seem like i'm like hating on our country right i live here too right? <laughs> my people go back generations that i can't even number my point is that the only way we ever got to make the country better was by facing the facts in front of us and the facts of race and racism are the actual stories that Obama tells about American exceptionalism, the story of civil rights leaders, the stories of of people who put on their marching shoes. He tells those stories constantly as if race and racism are only ever a thing of the past. Mm. And this book does the exact same thing. It keeps referring to the heroism and the sacrifice of people in the past, but never calls to arms the requirement and necessity of facing those facts before us. The same thing in Becoming. I mean, so those powerful stories about her father and her grandfather of not having equal opportunity, that mm-hmm. the country does not allow the dream to happen for the, for these black men, that that isn't a thing of the past. Yeah, that's right. That is something that, is something that could, could be applied to not could the, everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, she no. doesn't bring it up, uh, you know, that past and sort of apply it to her own experiences in the White House. Yeah. It feels sort of... Uh, you know, a little bit in amber in the, in the background. Yeah, well, I, I mean, this, is, this raises a whole series of questions that we've tried to explore just in centering how they talk and write about race and racism. All right, Khalil, this was a great talk. Yeah, this man. A great we, chat. Oh, man, this has been such an amazing uh, experience. I learned, I okay. learned from both the, my reading and listening to you <laughs> and, and this conversation for sure. And, and Jen Salai. And of course, Jen. Too. Yeah. 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 We got to do this again. This was, this was fun. <laughs> this was fun. Productive. All, you know. all right. Love you. Love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by Cher Vincent and edited by Karen Shakurji. Our engineer is Martine Gonzalez. Our associate editor is Keyshell Williams. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lee Tall Molad and Mia Lobel. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan Avery R. Young from his amazing album, Tubman. You will definitely want to check out more of his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you like to listen. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And most of all, I want to thank you, Kalu. I want to thank you too, Mom. All right.
So Khalil, let's let's just move. We're flowing. We're flowing. We are. So flowing. you 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 set me up. Yeah, just uh, like I was at a 50, I was at a fifty cent party last night. He smelled like weed. Uh, I saw mm. Big Daddy Kane. Uh, at a concert in 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 Manhattan, it was amazing. Uh, no one's uh, gonna accuse you of uh, of being a certain. <laughs> your 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 bona fides are right there. <laughs> the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 